So our reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 4. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who die, (coughs) and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and our minds today, but also that you would soften our hearts to receive all that you have for us. Amen. Amen. Well, what, it's amazing to be here. Um, I was vicar until six, five and a half years ago, but it was a formative time to leave this church for 13 years. And the particular, I was meant to take Kemi's wedding. It's the first commitment I failed uh, after I became a bishop and was no longer able to to, to fulfill that. So I, but Tim did it, I imagine. Did, Tim did it. It was a great service. It would have been even, yeah, it was much better that Tim did it. But it's a real treat to be here for Zachary's baptism. That was an unexpected joy. Um, the, um, so we're going to, this is a great series, by the way. Um, so thank you, Simon. It's very challenging. I normally, as the bishop, get to choose what I preach on but not at Christchurch. I'm normally quite careful that it's at least something I know a little bit about. To my horror, I discover I've never preached on 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in my life. So uh, this was a new journey. But it took me into the journey of this astonishing series. I think we need to publish this series. Because what Simon is leading you into, this is meant to be me encouraging the vicar. Um, What's happening is that in all seriousness, I think these six addresses are, ought to be foundational for every Christian church. So there is a story, and I'm not sure that it's, uh, whether it's well told or not, but there is a story about the devil who decided he was going to advertise his tools for sale. Now you'd put them on eBay, I guess, and you'd have a starting price for each thing. And um, anyway, there's a fixed date for the sale. And the tools were placed on a table for public inspection. Each was marked with its price. There were a treacherous lot of implements on the table. Hatred, envy, jealousy, deceit, lying, and pride, and so on. But apart from all of them, there was another tool. It looked harmless. It was well-worn and it was rusted. Yet it was priced very, very high. And one customer said, what is this tool? 
And the devil smiled and said, it's, it's discouragement. And the customer says, why is it so expensive? And the devil replied, it's much more useful to me than any other of the um, implements. I can pry open any human being with this instrument. I can get inside someone's heart with this instrument. I can get near to people that I couldn't get near with any of the other instruments. And once I'm inside, I can make them do what I choose. It is worn out because I have used it on every single human being. Discouragement. That story emphasizes the damage that discouragement does. Discouragement that it can do to the heart of a person. Discouragement that means the greatest person can be made ineffective. It can choke all the growth in our soul. It can bring progress to a standstill. It can render a Christian, a leadership team, a vicar and his staff, a congregation more useless than anything else can. And when you and I get discouraged, we stop praying, we stop reading our Bibles, and when we're discouraged, we no longer step out in faith. We don't trust God. We stumble into old sins and destructive habits. This is why this word, encourage one another, spur each other on, build each other up. This isn't optional. This isn't just for a few people. This is for all of us. But a word of caution. This is not simply picking on those with good emotional intelligence and saying, just say kind things to each other. This is much deeper than simply affirming other people. This demands a spiritual insight. It demands a prayerful insight. This isn't simply about creating fantasies about each other and what we could or couldn't do. There is a very deep and significant spiritual work, and the work is for now. So little wonder that many times in the New Testament we are, in, we are told to encourage each other. In 1 Thessalonians 4, the Thessalonians were told to encourage each other with the words of Paul's letter. I think that echoes a command to teach us to encourage each other with the words of Scripture. In Titus 1 verse 9, Paul reminds Titus that the church's elders are to encourage each other by sound doctrine. In Hebrews chapter 3, we are called to make encouragement a consistent and a constant part of our lives as Christians. Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. That's a beautiful way of putting it, isn't it? So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Encourage one another every single day. And then whenever you meet together, there is a mutual encouragement going on. Don't give up meeting together. Rather, encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. And so we get to this verse in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. Encourage one another and build each other up, just in fact as you are doing. I love what J.B. Phillips says about this verse. 
Go on cheering and strengthening one another, as I have no doubt (coughs) you have been doing. Imagine a church where everyone there is your greatest cheerleader. They believe you can do it. They're ready to help you make it happen. They're there to help you when you stumble. They're thrilled when you succeed. That's the kind of church we're called to be. And I think that's the kind of church Christ Church Winchester often is. But this is not about nostalgia. This is about today and the days to come. Is that the direction you will commit to going forward? I look around this room and I see so many people who have personally encouraged me. The 13 years as vicar here were formative years for me. We made many mistakes, but we got the chance. We got second chances time and time again. And today as a bishop, I hear testimonies about this church nearly every day. And I encounter people all around the diocese who have been members here and have been called to do other things. I don't know if you realize the church warden of St. Mary Southampton, our big resource church that we're seeking to really reshape a new cultural expression of the church. The church warden is a former member from here. The associate minister is a former member from here. The lead minister in St. Mary's Andover, again, a church to resource that part of the diocese, was an ordinand from here. And the list could go on. I was in the 8 o'clock communion this morning, and Rod and Lisa James were there telling me about their son, Tim. I remember the first time Tim spoke here as a teenager. He's now preaching in Italian to the Hillsong's churches of Italy because he's the key theological advisor to the European lead of Hillsong's. That gift was fanned into flame here. But actually, this isn't about those who are dispersed. This passage only means anything if it's about us, the person you're sitting next to, the person you'll meet at work tomorrow. It's about a whole people of God discovering what it is to use this spiritual gift of encouraging other people. But what does it mean? Well, the New Testament word is a Greek word. It's a beautiful picture in itself. The word encourage in Greek means literally this, to come alongside and to stand with someone. You encourage someone when you come alongside them and you help carry the load. You guide them in the way they should go. It's interesting that Jesus in John's Gospel uses the same word for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, the encourager. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside us, stands with us, and helps us move on. And that's the spiritual work of encouragement. So how do we as a church, how can we as Christians come alongside each other? How do we stand with each other? I found myself trying to work out who was it who encouraged Paul. And that's the key for me about why encouragement is so deeply embedded in Paul's teaching. The person who encouraged Paul was a man called Joseph of Cyprus. Actually, the other clergy, not Simon, the other clergy in the team just looked at me blankly this morning. What we know 
Joseph of Cyprus by his nickname. And his nickname, Peter Winfield, is Barnabas, son of encouragement. Okay, you knew that, didn't you? The Bible translator knew that. Yes, Barnabas, son of encouragement. It was his nickname. And if there was anyone in the Testament, in the New Testament, who had this gift, it was this man. And all the way through the book of Acts, you find him popping up with this gift. And I'm going to quite quickly look at three places where he does it, because I think these three examples of encouragement will change our church and will change you and me. The first time we see Barnabas is in Jerusalem. In those early days of the church, in the days that followed the day of Pentecost, a beautiful picture of what the church can be and what she is all about. Acts 4 verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own. Rather, they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Much grace was upon them all. There was no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales. They put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This wasn't the first or the only time that Barnabas did this. By the time he did it, he's already known as the son of encouragement. We will see it several times that he's the first to step forward. He's the first to offer acceptance. He's the first to jump in and help. That's what encouragers do. They're willing to be the first. They won't wait for someone else to do it first. They will do it themselves. And so Barnabas sells his property and uses it to help the church. And others begin to think, what a wonderful thing that man has just done. I'd like to join in as well. Encouragers, if you like, are God's jump leads for the church. In the old days, before I was told I had to ring the AA when this happened, if your battery was dead, you'd go and find someone who owns a Land Rover with some really decent heavy-duty jump leads, and you, particularly long ones, and you'd clamp them on the Land Rover battery and on your car battery, and the car would just start. And three miles down the road, end of problem, you think. When the battery's dead, the short-term solution is usually to use someone's jump leads. But that's what encouragement does to the church. It starts each other. It gets us going. It gives us energy and power. And Barnabas did this simply by sharing his resources. So Luke was able to say there were no needy people in that community. That's all the phrase says. But that is countercultural, even revolutionary, in the way people looked after each other. This church, many years before I came here, started something called the Early Church Fund. Because someone aspired 
that this should be a place where no one was in need. We need to be generous with our resources as well. And I know as I look around the church, many of you understand this to the core of your being. But there are other ways we can do it. Small ways too. We can prepare a meal. We can loan a car. We can buy a couple of bags of groceries. But sometimes we're asked to do bigger things. Maybe a week's worth of groceries. Maybe we need to give away a car. Maybe we need to make a big donation. You see, the world tells us that we succeed by acquiring, by owning, by possessing, by getting more and more, by compounding our wealth. But God, I believe, would say we succeed as Christians and as a church by giving and sharing, by giving it away. I don't know if this is nostalgic, or, and obviously it's incredibly subjective. So you might have to ask the Lord to help you forget this, this next tiny bit of the sermon. But one of my for the people I owe a lot to is Clarence Creswell. Clarence was an irascible man. He um, had a healing ministry. He was quite well known at certain points of the church's life. But um, by the time I arrived, his health was a little fragile, and every couple of weeks I'd get a phone call. Oh, Vicar, Vicar, I'm, I'm, I'm not well. I've got a bit of a pain in the chest. Will you come round? And I went quite a lot of times to his house uh, and began to think, you know, Clarence, I've heard of your heart vulnerability, but it's a bit... and then I realized through visiting him that there were people who might even be here now, <laughs> people in the church who were regularly cooking him meals and regularly doing his laundry. In fact, I think they've been doing it for 30 or 40 years. So I must confess, just a mild sense, that um, was he tapping the church community a little bit? Uh, and so, you know, just, you know, the wry smile on your face, wondering, now uh, those of you who were his dearest friends, I hope I haven't upset you, you have to forgive me. When he died, I repented seriously, because, of course, he left a large part of his estate to the church. And the kitchen over there, commercial kitchen in a, in a tiny room, but extraordinary, was paid for entirely from part of that legacy. And uh, I, you know, a lot of, I often think, you know, the hospitality of the church begins to, to be able to multiply. It's because of Clarence. But, or was it because of those who cooked him his meals for 30 or 40 years? Was it that extraordinary act of service that looked almost as if someone was taking advantage. But of course, in God's economy, there is no advantage. Well, we all take advantage of the one who's given us everything, Jesus. The rest of the legacy underwrote all sorts of risky things we did as a church. Just 10, Winchester Passion. Every time we sort of went out and said, we can do something here, it was because of Clarence. When I first arrived as vicar here, and we talked, Sam and I talked a little bit about this, um, Roger Horn, the treasurer, came to see me and said, you've got 11 days' money left in the bank. Was well, not, you know, at that, that moment I thought, why did I ever move out of Yorkshire to, to Hampshire? I thought this was meant to be one of the wealthiest communities in the British Isles. How could you have a church that's only got 11 days' money left? In the course of the next year, three people doubled on their own, doubled the income of the church. 
and the year after it doubled again with hundreds of people. Seems to me Barnabas was at work in this church. People started to be generous and then other people were generous. And, you know, I, I confess it now, there, were, there was a year or two we didn't actually know how to spend the money. Isn't that an extraordinary thing? My curate is the former curate is the rector of St. Michael of Belfry in York. Amazing church, 150 years since anything's been done on the fabric of the building. It's got an extraordinary impact on the city of York and far beyond. He's just received a check for £6.2 million from one donor. And he is in utter awe. He said, David, I don't, don't know what to do with this. The Georgian Society is saying, don't touch the building. I say, no, we have to touch the building. This has got to be a mission center. This is what the money is given for. All I can think is, Matthew must be a real faithful man of God, that the Lord would trust him with that. What was in the donor's mind? I don't know. But he's gone on to say there's another gift for church planting. God has no limit in what he can give. But you and I are invited to discover that generosity and see how it multiplies in our midst. That's encouragement. The second thing is that, um, and I'm conscious I need to just speed up a bit, that um, Barnabas was the person who saw Paul's potential. This ruthless man who executed Christians' blood on his hands, terrified the Christians when he turned up at services, They said, we don't trust him. We know his story. We know his history. Barnabas said, no, I'll stand with him. And Barnabas took him through a discipleship program. Barnabas trained him. Barnabas stood with him. And when they were commissioned to start the mission to Europe, it was Paul and Barnabas who went, and Paul was to become the apostle to the Gentiles. Barnabas saw it in God. What what do we see in God? for the person sitting near us, for the person we work with, the person in our small group. But of course, it wasn't only that he could see God's potential in someone, he was also the person who allowed people to have a second chance. There was a brutal row between Paul and Barnabas over a callow youth called John Mark. John Mark had been on that first missionary journey. He was, he was not resilient. He was not brave. And halfway through the mission, he runs away, and he runs home. You look at his CV, you look at the evidence, and you just say, this one we won't be hiring again. This one, you can't trust this one. And that's what Paul said when they were selecting the next team. Barnabas said, no, we need to take Mark with us. And they have such an argument, and Luke doesn't tell us, who he thinks was right or wrong, interestingly. But in the end, Paul goes with Silas and Barnabas goes with Mark. And we hear a lot about what Paul and Silas do. We hear very little more about what Barnabas does. But what of Mark? At the end of Paul's life, he asks he asks Timothy, will you send Mark to me? I've become very fond of him. Would he come and see me before I die? But of course, Mark goes on to write 
Peter's memoirs. He goes on to write the gospel of Mark. So this one who failed, this one who Paul said, we don't even want to trust him with anything anymore, ends up being the one who today we give thanks unto God for the gospel of Mark 2,000 years later is foundational in our Christian church. Generosity. Spotting in, in, in the gift of encouragement for other people because you see what God sees in the other person. And a church that is about giving people a second chance. We should be that place, shouldn't we? Where people with broken hearts, shattered dreams, failed attempts and wrong turns will find a group of men and women who in the grace of God are willing to say, try again, try again. I want to say thank you for inviting me to preach and I believe that this series and these words will change us and our church. Amen.